Nando's. The Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandoz and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Celebrating because I got one right. I was over celebrating because it was an unbelievable play. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think. And then when you got in my yes, yeah. when you got in my headset, then it, then it kind of dawned on me. I was like, yes, I did, Mike Gallagher. Mm. Yes, I did. It'll be a quick bold prediction recap. Yes, and then I think you said something we can't air. So it's okay. It's all right. it happens. So all right. Well, the dive of the game, and I think sometimes I feel like we oversimplify things, and you know, it's not as simple as it is. I think I can't understate how simple this one is or overstate how simple this is. I don't know. I've already confused myself. Uh, turnovers, right? I mean, you have a great first drive and you miss a field goal. Okay. Um, wind was whipping and I don't know if you overcompensated for it or what happened, but there was a missed field goal, but you felt pretty good about it. Then you get a three and out, get the ball back, and then you fumble driving going in. Then the next possession, it's an interception on your third play. Now, did get catch a break because Elijah Huzzle, as you just mentioned, was able to pick the pass off and give it back to ETSU. But then the Bucks would fumble again on a critical fourth down play. Uh, the coach felt like he had a right play, and I didn't follow up on him because it just didn't dawn on me till after um, after we got off the air talking to him that he made a comment about the coaches in the box felt like they had it, and I didn't know if he meant the play before and they didn't get a good spot, or if the defense and the play they had called once it started to develop, even though the ball was fumbled, that they had it and it was wide. I didn't get a clarification on that. I didn't think about it in my head. I was thinking he was talking about the play that uh, that they were running. That's how it came up to me, too. That, that's, what I, that's what I thought, but then I was trying to think back to it, and I'm going, I wonder if because he ran down to look at the spot. But my recollection of that was they were about two yards shy, 
So I don't so I don't think it could be that. So I'm thinking he thought he had the perfect play call. Um, now Kevin Brown was on the sideline. He said that this even though the snap was under center that it came up a little high on Rydell and popped out, and so it, it just from the start didn't go. But you know I I thought that was obviously critical because you got no points. I mean you foregoed the field goal, which would have made it a still a one point deficit. And if they score, you still would have got for two in each issue. And I know things changed because the game would have been completely different, but the Bucks went for two earlier and didn't get it, so I don't know that that would have done it. And then some critical penalties. You know, the penalty right for the first half with Jacob Sailors, and yes, even Chattanooga folks uh, up in a booth were giving me the, eh, nice little bit of acting job there. That throughout, matter of fact, Jim Reynolds actually called it a good acting job uh, on his broadcast for Chattanooga. So, still can't do that. There's no way three seconds after a play you give a full two-hand extended shove, even if it's not a thunder shove. I don't care how much you act, that's a penalty. It, agreed. It, it's 100% a penalty. You cannot do that. Then you get the offsides on the onside recovery, which I, I feel bad because we didn't even see the flag. We, we were both looking at the ball. Then, uh, you know, Stephen Scott somehow, who's on the other side of the field, came up with the ball. And you know how that goes in the bottom of the scrums. I don't know what goes on. People bite fingers or whatever, but Steven's got had the ball, and then lo and behold, it's, you know, hey, there's a penalty, and then you're just thinking, oh. And a lot of people, you know, I'd, I'd said something to a few folks about, you know, I can't believe they call it penalty because normally you got to be further down the road, and everybody was, you know, well, that didn't really cost us the game. And I said, no, I totally agree. It cost a great end of the radio broadcast. I'm, I'm very selfish in that way because win or lose, right, if you get a throw to the end zone or you get something that's just it, – it's never as exciting as the – the knee um, taken, and then I know Rusty Wright kind of went out of his way pregame to say not a rivalry or they need to get it to a rivalry, whatever wording. I think he was strategic from what he did 19. 19 he used street fight, rivalry, and his team had three or four personal foul sportsmanlike conduct penalties. I think they had one uh, on the day, and I think ETSU had one on the day. So, it was chippy at times, but, again, it's it's the kind of chippy I like where nobody really went over the top. And the two times it did, it got flagged. But other than that, it was well within. And, you know, yes, there were some uh, pleasantries. I know everybody wanted to go eat after the game or whatever happened there in the dust-up. But, you know, it was fine. There wasn't anything out of control. There was never any punches thrown. I mean, it was honestly more, I think, went wrong in the Citadel game where, a punch was thrown, and a guy stepped on a guy who was laying on the ground right in front of the referee, and it virtually was like, yeah, that's fine. It's 50. I mean, I guess we're allowed to do that now. So um, uh, penalties um, were there, but it was really the inopportune times for the penalties because the, the one-hold penalty backed ETSU up on the first drive. We already talked about the personal foul penalty. Obviously, whether you like it or not, there was the in the end zone uh, defensive pass interference penalty. So all those that, that didn't work out. And I thought for the most part, most of the calls were pretty obvious and evident. And I think they, they being the referees, pretty much let a lot a lot go down the field. I mean, there was a lot more hand fighting. I thought maybe the Will Huzzy play down the field, if you're going to call the one in the end zone, you could have argued that Huzzy got interfered with. Um, and he makes another acrobatic catch, which, which I hadn't even gone over. So I've kind of rambled here, but I really think it's pretty simple. The turnovers – and it wasn't just the number of penalties. It was the times and situations of the penalties really hurt ETSU. Yeah, three turnovers plus the turnover on downs late. Then 
62 yards and penalties isn't horrible yardage-wise, but you mentioned kind of the timing of them. The holding kills your drives, momentum, you know, in that early on. Uh, the 15-yarder on Sailors potentially cost you points before they happen. Even on the interception, the blindside block right before that drive started that Sailors penalty killed. That's big because instead of starting at the 23, you started at the 5. And the Bucks penalized via the Sailors' unnecessary roughness. ETSU is at their own 46, at 18 yards there, and they're at Chad's 39 with the win on fourth and four if everything else would have stayed the same. And you mentioned it. You can't just plug and play these things and say everything would have been the same and the game wouldn't have changed at all with these calls, you know, either existing or not existing. But you've got the 23 to the five. That's 18 yards. And so if everything happened the same, then the situation is totally different when you're in Chattanooga territory. And you, you may even consider – kicking a field goal there on that fourth and four. If it isn't the 39, because that would be, what, 57 yards, it would be a career long for Tyler Keltner. But with the win, he's told me before that he's made him practice 60 yarders. So depends on how you're feeling, right, if you're right before the half. Um, so, yeah, a lot of poorly timed penalties. Uh, and then the offsides obviously takes away the onside kick recovery as much offsides as it was or was not. I completely agree with you. I went back and watched a number of sequences in this game, and I completely agree with you on the offsides. I do not believe that ETSU should have won that game on Saturday. No, they did not deserve to win the game. Now, it is frustrating when it comes down to the last minute and there's a call that directly influences the rest of the outcome of the game, and I understand the frustration there because it looked like we didn't have a camera right down the line, right? But the top camera was you know, offset by, what, 10, 15 yards. It looked like there was maybe six inches of foot that he could have been offside on the onside kick. And correct me if you think it's more than that, but I mean... No, and I think every time you see those penalties, usually it's pretty obvious, like when you see the replay. The other thing, and you can't discount this, it was, and I'm not, again, this isn't a conspiracy, they're cheating type deal, but the call was made because it was the side it was kicked on, but it was also on Chattanooga sideline, and you can't tell me there was an assistant coach or Rusty Wright himself, they're offsides or offsides. I mean, rather, rather it is or isn't, right? I mean, I thought it was interesting the one time ETSU got a pass interference call that the one of the back judges went to the flag, went to throw it, pump faked, started to put it back in his pocket, <laughs> then heard there was a lot of ruckus, and then finally he threw it. And I thought it was the easiest pass interference call of the day um, compared to the other three that were flagged that day. So um, I think the only frustrating part for me was that as much as you watch those plays as usually it's going to be in a and a grit, like it's a yard. It, like if it's a tweener type play late like that, usually the referees are let let everybody decide it. And the probability of recovering that is so low that generally I think they probably let it go more than it should. And pe- probably teams know that. But like I said, I agree. We didn't have a, a thing down the line. It is not the reason why ETSU lost the game out of all the things that happened. That was not – and ETSU – Still would have had to score a touchdown. They still would have had to go, was about 50 yards, 45 yards, whatever, 30 seconds to go. And, and, yes, you know, Rydell would have thrown into the wind, so you might have needed to get to at least 10 yards before you threw one towards the end zone. But still, I mean, the probability of the onside kick, the Hail Mary, all of those things play, play into it. You'd like to have had a shot. I, I get it. But I, I thought it was amazing just the two times it seemed like ETSU's defense got misaligned that Chattanooga was able to bust it. And it's sort of their game. 
They're not great offensively. They're real good at momentum changes, and I think that's a mark of a good team. Every time they get turnovers, or most of the time, they didn't, not all the time, they obviously turn it back over in the ETSU game, but when they got turnovers and have this year, you know, they've got a lot of points off turnovers, almost 50 now, because they've been able to just turn those around into scores and get the offense sort of jump-started. And then I thought they had a good game plan, used a lot of motion, trying to confuse the defense. And honestly, ETSU didn't get really out of whack except for two plays. And unfortunately for ETSU, those two plays were long touchdown runs. And I go back to my 24-point theory. Mike, I know I'm broken record, and uh, I, no one has broke their arm trying to reach their back more than I have on this. But if ETSU could get to 24 points, I still feel like they'll win every game because I just don't see – other than the Sanford game, and, and I thought there would be one, and if, you, if I had to twist my arm, I would have predicted Sanford. But I just feel like the ETSU defense, the way they are, unless the offense turns it over four or five times, I just don't see people getting to 24, and the ETSU offense turned it over three times and then the turnover on down. So you could call it, you could call it four and still only gave up 21 points. So I still think if the offense figure out now, I don't think this guy's falling. I think if you would have beginning of the year looked at Chattanooga and Furman and said back-to-back road games, if you go one-on-one, you probably would have taken it. Now, did you know before the year ETSU would be Vanderbilt? They would have things rocking and rolling before that. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I think none of us predicted that. Um, so I think it's still okay. I don't think the sky's falling. I think you're still in a situation where and we'll get into this and the other Southern Conference results, but the league is as wide open as we thought it would be. Everyone still has tough games left, and so we'll just see how it shakes out. I think maybe VMI has played more of the top teams but still got a couple of teams to play. And then, you know, I mean, Chattanooga's still got to play Furman. They've still got to play Mercer. they still got Sanford. It gives them a little bit of trouble. So there's a lot of good games there. We obviously know ETSU's got VMI, Mercer, and Furman coming up. In terms of this game, did you agree with going for it on fourth and a debatable distance, apparently, because Randy Sanders said with you post game he thought it was like fourth and four feet. I went back and looked at it, and you and Don Helmut mentioned on the broadcast, it was very strange that the chains were like three or four yards back from where they usually are. It, usually they're up on where, you know, whatever the close to the sideline. They were almost back where the, the white line, almost five yards back, where, where like the players, the get-back coaches, like shoving people away. I thought that was – I don't think I've seen it that far back. Yeah. So it's hard sometimes on the far side to tell the exact yards. It was, yeah, it was tough to judge. I thought the chains were on like the seven and a half, and it looked like the ball was on like the nine and a half. And so, it looked a full uh, – all honestly, I thought it was a full two yards, two yards, if not even maybe slightly more. And it may sound like that we're, you know, uh, kind of – making this a bigger deal than it is. Like, oh, two feet, well, you're going to call the same thing. Well, maybe you are, you know, four six, four feet to six feet. But you heard Coach Sanders wander a lot about it post-game if he should have maybe kicked the field goal. And I can tell you in here, I was yelling uh, with my microphone off, of course, at the TV as I, you know, we got like a 30-second delay so I can watch the plays as you describe and then I watch them just to see what's going on as you did when you were out with COVID. Um, when the Bucks were playing uh, at home those couple of weeks. And I thought that he should have kicked the field goal. Now, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, And Tyler Keltner has had his struggles lately. I don't think that there's any thought in your mind that when you send him out for what would have been a 27-yard field goal that he would miss that, even though he missed one earlier in the game. Uh, I did not agree with it. Um, 
about 10 minutes left. ETSU had all the momentum. You kick a field goal, you're within one, then you only need the field goal as things played out. And again, they probably would have played out completely differently if the Bucks would have kicked the field goal. But as things went, they ended up scoring a touchdown and, you know, don't get the two, so they get the six points and so on and so forth. There's a wide variety of domino effects that could have happened. But I thought at that time, at that moment, that the aggressive play was not the right one to make. And obviously I'd be singing a different tune if the Bucks had gotten it and scored the touchdown. So before the drive started, I think I said, or during the drive early, I think I said if you could get down there and at least get three, then no matter what Chattanooga did, they're probably not going to go for two. Although I'm a huge fan of that. If you're already up seven, instead of kicking extra point, go up eight. NFL teams do this now because they're kicking a 33-yard extra point or whatever. They'll go for two and try to get it to nine. And if they miss it, they're like, well, the other team's not going to go for two. They'll just kick the extra point. But if you get it, now it's a two-score game. I didn't think Chattanooga would ever consider that. So if they score, kick extra point, I'm thinking still one-score game late. Now I'll say this, that I didn't really at the time think anything about it because I felt like Coach Sanders ran all the way down to see, like, exactly how far he was. And when he immediately – there was no – at that time – didn't seem like hesitation, although I think he was trying to figure out the spot, and that caused the play to get in late. And if you're going to go for it, I almost wish at that point, again, hindsight, maybe call the timeout, even though timeouts were a premium, maybe call a timeout to make sure because it felt rushed. But if you feel like there is a play you've sat on the whole time and you know it's going to work, and it sounded like, other than the snap, and uh, Rydell obviously not handling the ball after the snap, that it was going to be there, I think that's where you kind of felt his frustration in saying something in, well, maybe I, I should have kicked it. But I, I, the only thing I think is because it was so rushed, and if you're going to go for it and it was such a big thing, that I, I think I only wish they would have called a timeout. I don't think I had a problem with them going for it. Now, I am, as everyone makes fun of me on the broadcast, the kick-it guy. I'm always the conservative. I, you know, Never go for it on fourth, punt it, kick a field goal. Take the points, you know, don't go for two too early, do do all the other things. So I'm usually that guy, and um, I still, if it was me uh, playing the old NCAA game on PlayStation, I would have kicked the field goal. But that's me. And, again, I think Coach, we've seen it before, he set on plays, and sometimes set on plays for weeks that he has waited for a situation to call it. And so – I've trusted in Randy this year, right? I've, everything he seems to have dialed up has worked. And the one thing I don't think he was thinking about was, is my center and quarterback going to get the exchange, and is he going to be able to do that? So me personally would have kicked. I'm right there with you because I am the guy that just wants to kick and not want to roll the dice there. But I think he, in his mind he had set on something. He knew it was going to work. According to him and his coaches up in the box, the play would have been open. The execution, something you wouldn't think about that is so mundane but is so critical to football, the exchange between the center and the quarterback, and that cost ETSU. I did go back and watch that one, too, and it's pretty much exactly how you describe it. It looked like the snap got up a little high, and then Tyler, in trying to grab it and make sure he had it, was late on his turn to hand it off. And then that means the ball was late, and it never really got into the arms of, uh, I believe it was Quay, who, who was in there at that time. And then the ball's in the ground.
out and you lose like 12 yards. A couple of things on Chattanooga. Uh, firstly, Devon Maxwell is a beast. I think he had four and a half sacks. Uh, third most sacks in an FCS game across the country this year and is now a top five in the country. He was an animal. Four and a half. He was very good. He had five coming in. He's got nine and a half now, top five in the country in sacks uh, at the FCS level. I thought it was interesting to see Tyrell Price get all the carries in the first 20 or so minutes with Appleberry, and then Appleberry puts it on the ground and doesn't see the field again. Then Ford comes in. It's kind of the hammer in the middle portion of the game, and then Price closes it out with the 58-yard run, both very effective and think you and me would make no bones about the fact that it's one in one a with Holmes and Sailors versus Price and Ford for best running back duo in the league and they showed it again um, the big thing it seemed like leading up to the game not only in coach conversations with coach Sanders coach Taylor coach Rader but us here speculating and really you didn't have to be a football savant to look at it and deduce this for yourself but who was going to win the line of scrimmage and it felt like more negative plays this game came for the Bucks. then the entire rest of the year combined. You give up five sacks the whole year, then you give up five against Maxwell in the box. And ten of the 14 negative plays on the day were ETSUs. And really, Chad only had three because a kneel down was one of theirs. Interesting to see the things as I look at my list here of what I'm concerned about and how things have shaken out. And tell me what of these that you think uh, are most concerning uh, firstly, talked with Billy Taylor. Uh, he told me a few weeks ago that he's most concerned about the defensive line on his side of the ball. And we didn't see it a whole lot against Wofford and the Citadel, obviously Sanford, but a balanced attack like Chat, we did. And I wonder if a team like Mercer wouldn't also hurt ETSU, especially with Austin Lewis and Blake Bockrith, both out extended periods, because you do have that balanced offense with Mercer now. They're absolutely horrific, as we'll talk about in a couple of minutes this weekend against VMI. But same type of thing in terms of the balance that they'd like to achieve. Um, Tyler Keltner has now missed uh, kicks in back-to-back-to-back games after he missed just eight yeah, his entire straight. career um, before this three-game stretch, and he's now missed one per game. Um, so those two areas, kicking, uh, defensive line, my optimistic side here says, much like you, skies and folly, because if that's as bad as the Bucks can play, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we don't know, but they still found a way to be in it at the end, have a chance, and you heard Coach Sanders talk about that post game. I'm just proud that in a game like that, where it seemed like things were going against us a lot of the day, that we still found a way to have the onside kick, if it wasn't for a phantom penalty, have a chance to go down um, and get a touchdown and win the game. Uh, so I guess, line of scrimmage, negative plays, defensive line on the other side, and then kicking game. Which of the three would concern you most coming out of this game? The most that concerns me, I guess, was the, and it's concerned me a little bit, the lack of pressure without blitzing. I think that concerns me. And I thought Chattanooga, because they usually leave the tight end in in similar formation, that they kept ETSU in base a lot more because they were so successful on second down, which was very odd. They struggled on first down, but second down they would seem like they always got big chuck plays. And had third and short or third and medium. And so it was a situation where you couldn't go full recon where the Bucks have had a lot of success blitzing the quarterback. And I think them keeping ETSU in base and being able to do different things out of it on third down, really the chess match there was advantage to Chattanooga because I think ETSU couldn't quite get to the quarterback unless they were in a type of recon package. And then even if they didn't, there was a couple times where – Formationally, you had a linebacker trying to 
check Reginald Henderson Jr. as a leading receiver at six foot four and a speedster for Chattanooga, and, and it's an unfair matchup. And then when ETSU was able to get in the recon package, they were able to get Odomegwu, George Odomegwu at one corner, move Elijah Huzzy over um, to the nickel, and then all of a sudden ETSU was getting some success. They were getting the quarterback, but I think that one concerns me the most. I think Keltner maybe just be, you know, again, this one was, he kicked into a pretty good crosswind at 12 miles an hour, so I, I can give him, you know, at least this one that there wasn't perfect conditions like the other couple kicks that he's missed in his own stadium. So I'll forgive that, but I think that would be my number two concerning thing. But I think not being able to get pressure on the quarterback, and, you know, let's face it, there's a couple of injuries that have mounted up. Austin Lewis not there, Blake Bacris not there. Those are key guys on the – and I know Bacris is a stand-up defensive end, but when they blitz four, he's a guy that comes off the edge. So I think that's certainly uh, a concern where Chattanooga, that's their strength. ETSU will not play even in the playoffs. I don't think they'll play a good front three as they did against Chattanooga. And I think it was, a like I suspected, a great matchup between secondaries. I thought their secondary was up to the task. All the catches that were really given up were tough. Uh, catches down the field when it involved man-to-man defense, corners, and wide receivers. And same thing for ETSU. When it was corners and wide receivers, it was tough to do. ETSU was able to take advantage of some matchups with some running backs and tight ends or get a, a, a zone coverage and a look here and there. But when it was corners and wide receivers, I thought it was a matchup of the two best secondaries, and I think it showed in the game. We heard so much about Malik Murray, and he's really been silent since those first two games. He had 50-plus yards in each of them against Vanderbilt and UVA-wise. And over the last five games, he's got zero 50-yard games and two one-catch games, just two catches against Chattanooga, which is pretty disappointing. And that's where I thought maybe, well, you've heard me a couple times, in fact, say that against stronger defenses, I think that he's someone that they can turn to. And it seemed like against Chattanooga that would be a direction they could go, especially now with Isaiah Wilson out, as he is. Uh, you've obviously got Will Huzzy, who is an extreme talent, no question. He's your over-the-top deep guy. He can do it a variety of things, but that's the number one thing he does. It seems like Malik Murray, his number one thing is being the possession you know, work underneath, you know, six to nine yard routes, shake a guy, have some yards after catch, but he's going to be your underneath guy, and you've got that balance that you can achieve there, and Nate Adkins can work over the middle as the tight end, so on and so forth. But we haven't seen that from Malik Murray, and that to me has also been disappointing, and, and I'm not sure that because of the way that things can ebb and flow throughout a year worries me like the other three things. And I'm not worried about the offensive line, honestly. That would be three for me, uh, simply because they've got a long track record. Um, specifically this year, you know, with just the five sacks, but in terms of run blocking throughout the last, you know, three or four years since Quay Holmes started running the ball for ETSU, it's a great relationship there. I don't think Malik Murray worries me like the defensive line or the kicking game do right now. I think it's right around with that offensive line, but the fact that they're just not getting him the ball or he's not able to shake free, I'd have to watch a lot of tape to see which it is. But a veteran presence like that that's played high-level football, that's the type of game against Chattanooga that I wish that he would have been there, shown up. They would have made it a point to get him the ball if he uh, was open. Uh, again, maybe Tyler didn't, he wasn't, but um, that is like a 3C for me. 3B, 3A, 3C, whatever, along with the offensive line. I think Rydell would be another one you'd have to slightly throw in there. Now, again, I'm going not ready to jump off ship. I just think it's hopefully an outlier that it was just a game that 
you go into. It's a robbery game, and just things just didn't work out. I mean, obviously, the, the fumble, he's trying to make a play. Interception, uh, you know, is a play they've ran before, so either good scouting or good break on the ball. Uh, but either way, I thought it was an outstanding play just to pick that pass off by Lawson. And then, the you know, the fumble exchange with the center on however you want to look at that. But uh, I kind of feel like everything had kind of been going right, and then you had a game where everything went wrong. So let's just see how it plays. And then he definitely was under pressure more this game than he's been in the whole season. But I thought some of that was because, again, once Chattanooga got in pass rush situations and those guys could just kind of pin their ears back and go at it, it was very tough uh, to control. But it was a matchup between, you know, one of the best sack teams and Chattanooga versus one of the better offensive lines in ETSU. And I just don't think ETSU is going to face that good of a line. I think Furman will blitz more because I think they realize they can't get home with, at least from what I've seen, I don't think they can get home with three or four. So we'll see how that goes, how that ties in the offensive line and Tyler Rydell, sort of all wrapped up into one in the bow. Let's so. talk about it for a minute another, shall we? I do want to talk about Southern Conference football because I get fired up about it. We'll do that on SL this time out. Send the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. And they never heard from him again. <gasps> Now that's scary, but listen to this one. It was a dark and dreary night. The man pulled into the convenience store parking lot. The lights flickered as he crept toward the counter and saw the new Halloween jumbo box, but he left without buying one, missing his chance at $75,000. That's terrifying. I know, right? Scare up some fun this season with a new Halloween jumbo box, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Breakdown. Sandos and the sidekick. We have ignition. Strap it on. Here we go. In your face, all over the place. Sandos. On this show, obviously, because we give you the times, and you can just click around, and you won't hear if we say something we think is brilliant. So we want to repeat it again to make sure that everyone hears. Yeah, we do. If you listen to Sandos and the sidekick Thursday, you did not really have to watch the game Saturday. Everything went almost exactly how we laid it out. Both thought the Citadel would give Furman a fight. Both thought that BMI would be in that game against Mercer if not pull the upset. Now, I'll say this. Did not see the final score. No, no. And and certainly, again, we're not wise guys, but ten and a half points for Mercer was laughable. Laughable. There are a few absurd things, line-wise, that we'll talk a little bit about uh, here in a couple of seconds. Let's get this, let's get it straight though. Throw forty-five-seven. Never would have thought. No. And you said you thought that it was going to be Sanford. That was going to be victorious against Wofford. I said I thought it'd be a close game and wasn't really sure who would win. We were both kind of right there. And even on the ETSU game, thought it would be close and low scoring, but we were both worried for the Bucks in this game. Yep. A scenario I presented was Chat beating ETSU and BMI beating Mercer to leave five one-loss teams in the league with a month of regular season play to go. And here we are, Jay Sandos, with five one-loss teams. In the Southern Conference, let's dive in a bit deeper. Sanford 27, Wofford 24. Ever since beating Tennessee Tech 52-14 to in their opener, every game for the Bulldogs has been separated by one score. They'd be a modern-day ETSU if ETSU wasn't a modern-day ETSU. But they had one, only one of the four going into last week, but they pull out a tight one thanks to a rare field goal from the Bulldogs laid on. Zach Williams from 38 yards with 98 seconds left. The Terriers continue to be kings of the big play. 88 yards from Peyton Derrick to Alec Holt in the first quarter. For a touchdown, Irvin Mulligan goes 41 in the early stages of the fourth on the ground. 
This time, though, they actually had some backing to their big plays. 366 rush yards, almost 600 yards of total offense, and they possessed the ball for over 40 minutes. This was old-school Wofford. This is what you have been clamoring for all of these weeks. They broke out, and you think that with that much offense, they put up more than 24 points, but they scored just seven first-half points, missed two field goals, won his time, expired to tie the game and send it to overtime. Playing the second half at quarterback, not Peyton Derrick. So you got to figure, it's probably Jimmy Weirich, right? It was not. Bryce Coriston, as Derrick was largely ineffective out of that 88-yard touchdown to Holt, throws a 48-yard completion to Wyatt Barkoyak on his first career pass. Does Coriston outside of that, also largely ineffective through the air, though he did carry it 10 times for 65 yards. Wofford nearly 600 yards of total offense and a loss. What are you more shocked about that we saw a quarterback we hadn't seen from Wofford or that Chris Hatcher still happy about his defense. Oh, tell me he had a quote about his defense. Oh, yeah, he's, he's still pleased. That 40 minutes of time of possession, almost 600 yards, as you mentioned, 366 on the ground, through for 207. The breakout game you were expecting and a dominant second half by Wofford, and then Wofford actually gets to uh, – gave up the game eventual winning field goal, 138. Got the offensive position for a 41-yard field goal at home and couldn't get it to go. I think it came up short. Oh, come on, really? I think it was a short. I think it came up short. I have to go back and watch it again. But I think the 41-yard field goal was short. Even if it wasn't, if it's left or right, it's a 41-yard field goal. And Wofford did, I mean, they were now 24-7 going in the locker room. And I thought, you know, oh, boy, you know what, what's Conklin going to be able to do? But then they stuck to the game plan. You know, got a couple rushing touchdowns, got a field goal. Yes, they finally gave up points in the fourth quarter, but they came right back down the field, put themselves in position. And for whatever reason, teams have different teams' numbers, and Sanford has always had Wofford's number. And so they win another tough game. But, again, I, that's, I think the success, I don't think it's rocket science. If you're Wofford, what you need to do to be successful, and I think if they stick to the game plan, you know, I know 366 yards and Sanford's not very good on defense, but still if they stick to the game plan and time of possession, then I think their defense can help them win some games if they can just put up enough points. So uh, very happy to see Wofford running the football, but this game played out exactly like I thought it would. Sanford would win because that's just what they've done, I think, six straight now over Wofford. Don't you tell Chris Hatcher that his defense is not very good. BMI 45. Mercer 7, what seemed like the most intriguing game of the weekend outside of ETSU chat, ended up being the one dud in the league. Mercer just did not show up, and the Kedats made a statement. No, Mike Gallagher, just because we only have one of our top five tacklers back from last year does not mean our VMI defense is dead. And no, Jay Sandos, we are not a one-trick pony in the backfield with no Corey Brady. VMI smacks both of us in the mouth by proving us right, ironically. We said after the Lions came out for the game Saturday morning that we thought this one in particular was absurd. Mercer by double digits. Furman was also favored by double digits. They ended up, I believe, not covering by a half point. Is that right? Is that 10 in the hook? Right. It was, it was either 10 in the hook or 11. It was absurd. Alarm bells were ringing for us there, too, but this was really the one, the eye popper. I don't know what anyone would have seen from. I, I get Mercer had won seven of eight conference games going back to the spring. I get that Fred Davis has broken all kinds of records, but – VMI was coming off a win over what was voted to be and what may prove to be the league champion 
uh, in the preseason poll. And again, who knows come November, Chattanooga. Like, yes, I know it was an overtime, but still a good victory at home. They've shown that they can throw the ball. They've shown that they can run the ball. The defense has not been very good. It was absolutely excellent against Mercer. Uh, the very first play from scrimmage, that defense that I have destroyed, House is a 39-yard interception return, and that's when you pretty much knew that this one was going to not be what you had expected, a close, tight game. Uh, from there, they go on to allow only 200 total yards, only 23 on the ground to such a lauded, celebrated running team with all kinds of Fred Davis records to their name this year. They averaged less than one yard per carry, did Mercer, and the Keydats, by picking off Fred Payton twice, forced a quarterback change late after Payton had just 84 yards and completed under 50% of his passes. Okay, now for you, because that's all the hate that I'm going to give myself. BMI goes out of their way to tell Jay Sandoz to take a seat, as without Corey Brady, they rushed for 306 yards, both Rashad Raymond and Hunter Rice over 100 on the day. Who needs to throw it? Neither QB that plays, Seth Morgan or Colin Ironside, tops 100 yards. The offense looks balanced. It looks dangerous. I don't know where Corey Brady was. Furman was also missing their top running back in Devin Wynn, which we'll talk about in a second. There were a couple of the best in the Southern Conference that weren't out there. But Rashad Raymond and Hunter Rice don't seem to care. It didn't seem to matter. And VMI completely goes against what they usually would do. I mean, the game plan was shocking, yet effective. I mean, if I just read this stat line before the game, Seth Morgan is 9 of 18 for 81 yards. Lost. Ironside comes in in relief, 3 for 449 yards. I tell you that Jacob Harris has zero catches. Michael Jackson, zero catches. There's no way you're going to – I would believe you stared at me and said, you know, they won 45-7. Oh, no, 45-7 would have been the right score. Correct. (laughs) No, that's brilliant. Yes. So 306 yards, R-squared, Rashawn Raymond or R-squared, Raymond Rice, however you want to look at it, either way, they were phenomenal. And I think it shows you sometimes when things start off bad, it can be hard to recover. Now, it started bad for ETSU, and they were able to make a play to recover. Mercer threw the quick pick six, and then they gave up the football. They got a blocked kick right around, I think it was midfield, in the first quarter, went right down the field, and then they missed their own 21-yard field goal. And I think from there, if you're a Mercer fan, you start or you started to think, boy, this is this is going to be a different day. Or I would think it's going to be a different day. Sort of like a couple turnovers early for ETSU. I went, mm, that's going to be, you know, not, not quite what it's been. Did, and certainly that Mercer wouldn't have been out of it because they did a nice job of kind of keeping it together at halftime. But the first three possessions of the third quarter was touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. So even when you thought, like, you had a shot to get back in it, all of a sudden, bang, 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 and then Mercer doesn't get a score until, well, I think a minute 40, something like that to go. Maybe five minutes. Out. It, was late. It, was late. it was late. It was late, and it didn't matter. But that was the biggest shock of the weekend. Not that VMI won. They're certainly good enough to beat anybody in the league. They've proven that. We've all come around on that. But the way they did it with the defense, the run game, stuff they've been struggling with, stopping the run, that was my concern. I said, if VMI could stop the run, I thought they could win. And, again, there is no scenario where you would have said 45-7 either way and I would have said, yep, that sounds right. None. I thought this would have been a, you know, a 28-24, you know, 31-28 game and somebody won, you know, a higher scoring game. And, then you know, I thought VMI could win it. I think I predicted Mercer by three, but I thought VMI certainly could win it. But, yeah, that was impressive 
to see exactly what uh, VMI was able to do. And I wonder if VMI just got in a rhythm where it was like, hey, they're getting chunk plays running. Mercer's still thinking about pass and, and all the turnovers, missed field goals, and everything just worked in advance. I, I don't, I've not watched it yet, uh, mainly because we play them a little later, so I will go back and watch this in a week or so. But uh, I cannot wait. I watched some of it live because I tend to have some games on of importance. Uh, I think when we were driving back or whatever, we just had it on listening to it. But uh, I'm thoroughly impressed with what VMI was able to do. And then for Mercer, you just kind of see how quickly they can just take the football, take the air out of it, dig a hole, put the ball in, bury it, and just say, all right, boys, we got a new week. Just forget that thing even happened. It certainly helped for VMI that after they got the pick six, then three plays later you get a sack of Fred Payton, and it's a strip sack. You're recovered on the 20, and you're right in the red zone again. You get another touchdown, and before even two minutes, they've run off the clock. You're at 14-0. And so then it, I'm sure, is compelling and intriguing for Scott Wackenheim to just say, well, let's pack it in. I mean, our defense has done unbelievable things. Now let's try to control the clock. I mean, he's the national coach of the year for the reason. I mean, that reason is it's fair. that he puts together great game plans, and when – game flow is leaning one way, he's going to follow that. And he did so, I think, brilliantly. Defensively, offensively, they were the better team. What's the bigger storyline for you, Mercer crumbling or VMI soaring? Uh, probably Mercer crumbling. Um, I, I think because they obviously helped uh, VMI soar. And so the fact they turned it over a lot and couldn't run the football and they couldn't stop the run, I think, was more shocking than, than VMI being able to put up 45 points. They just did it a little differently than I thought they could. That passing game. It seems now, now that it's cost Mercer, is going to be a problem. We thought so because it hadn't really been. They hadn't needed it. They hadn't, but it still hadn't been in the little that they had done it that good. They were throwing interceptions, and, yeah, they are only, you know, throwing for, what, 150, 160 game. That wasn't the concerning part, but the low completion percentage for Fred Payton and a couple of interceptions here and there, um, definitely something that's going to play into if they can stick around the Southern Conference title hunt. Okay, Furman 24, the Citadel 14. There's no reason for us to break down the game when head coach Brent Thompson of the Citadel can do it for us. We get six penalties for 30 yards, and they got two penalties for 10 yards. All right? That's the game right there. That's the story right there. That's all there is to it, about six plays. Right? Every single statistical category, we win. But you know what? You can't play that poorly and expect to win. Did you get an explanation for the penalty on the reverse? Yeah, we blocked them too far. I didn't know it was a penalty anymore, but apparently it is. This game has gone so damn soft that we can't even freaking play the game anymore. Bucking guy, out of, out of bounds. Okay. Did he put him into the cooler? That's a penalty. So. Next question. Well, first of all, too, we saw the video of it, and he is staring intently, so you're thinking maybe, yes. he's, maybe he's going to follow up. Next question. Okay. All right. Uh, sorry, sir. I mean, like, so there's a lot to really go over there. Uh, the blocking that got too far, I th- what he meant was too far out of bounds. That's the only thing I can figure, because there's not a, a, ever a rule blocking a guy too far down the field. But when he said water cooler, it made more sense. I'm like, oh, they blocked him, and it must have drove him out of bounds. And then Coach's point was, well, did we block him a few feet out of bounds? Or, I mean, I thought that was okay. I, you know, did, If we put him 25 feet back into a water cooler, yes, totally agree. That's too to much. Um, I think Waterboy did it one time, oh, yeah. if you want to watch that. that. Yeah, so, but yes, I, but six penalties for 43 yards. Yeah, because it was originally 30. They corrected it up to 43. 
you heard him mention 30 in the soundbite. Not technically accurate anymore. Again, 43, that was not even that bad. Yeah, and if you look at the numbers, and I just want to, again, Citadel total yards, 381 to Furman's 289. Furman only had, well, I added up, and I already forgot, like 67 yards, 57 yards in the second half. 53, 53. It was not a lot in the second half. Matter of fact, the drives for um, in the second half for Furman were 11 yards, 5 yards, no yards, 31, which they scored on after getting the ball on a fumble, and then a seven-yard drive. I think maybe Coach Thompson should look at the three turnover on downs, the interception, and the two fumbles. That would be – and I'm not trying to argue with Coach Thompson. He knows his team better than I do, but – And you, six turnovers I in mean, actuality. You're, Only three technically, but six. You turn it over on Citadel's 37 going for it. You turn it over on Citadel's inside the 10. Then you turn it over on the four. So you have two red zone turnover on downs. Then you have an interception in your own territory. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't Furman's territory at the 40. Then you fumble again um, right around the 40-yard line of your own, and then you fumbled and just ends the game. But it was amazing that I get the penalty cost, I guess I – I think one may have went for a score. Was it no, Raleigh Webb? Didn't score? even go for a score. It was it didn't. 17 yards, I think. I looked back at the box score and it said 17 yards. I don't believe it was a score, and I'll go back and look at it a second time just to make sure, and then we can edit the podcast. No one will ever know this happened. But <laughs> I get he's frustrated because of those two penalties, and they come in the final two drives that they had. One on the first play of one of those drives to set him back. And want to wipe out that big game by Webb that would have put him into Furman territory. But they fumbled just a few plays later on both of those drives. And those were really the last two important drives of the game for the Bulldogs, down 10. So 43 penalty yards when, as you mentioned, you really turned it over like six times. Uh, it's similar to ETSU if they were to look at that offside on the onside kick and say, well, that's the reason we lost the game. No. I mean, come on. The, the 57 minutes before that is why ETSU lost the game. They didn't play good enough to win. The Citadel, when you go 0 for 4 on fourth downs, allow a backup running back to run for 132 yards, and you turn it over three times, but really six times if you include the turnover on downs, that's why you lost in my opinion. And I get that he's mad and it's right after the game, and the ship is sinking, and it has been for a couple of years now on Brent Thompson. But you got to have a leveler head than that, I would think. Can I just say this? Three of the six penalties, two are false starts. And one was an encroachment on the defense. So I, I don't think those have anything to do with anything. Now, there was a hold inside uh, Furman's nine-yard line. So that backed them up, okay? Then you had the Raleigh-Webb, you're right, 17-yard rush. And then you had the 15, so it ended up being a, a two-yard gain or whatever it was. And then Jalen Adams had an 11-yard run. And then there was a hold that would have got it down to the Citadel's 30. Still, when he yelled about the six penalties when three are pre-snaps, by offense or defense, those are pretty evident. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think frustration is blind. I could see the blocking out of bounds, which is what he blew a gasket on. Yes, I could see where that like because it almost sounded like he was blaming his team for the penalties. You can't play like that and win, he said. But then we really got down to the nitty gritty there on the second question. I mean, when you're when again, we've talked about this, but when you're at an academy, like there's a level of 
you fight really through the right. They, they, I mean, they can be down seventy and they just compete. I mean, they're training for something totally different. So they're they're competing to the very end, whether outnumbered or not. It's just it's just what they train to. So sometimes you get in these games late and you're like, golly, these guys are still hitting us or going at it, and you should be. Con-. And then you know, well, I've heard other coaches on a national level talk about, hey, when you play Army Navy like late, like we've had to tell our guys like. These guys are training for something else, man. Like, don't think because you're up 30 or 35, like somebody's not going to try to knock you out of the game. Like, they're, they're going at it. So, I think Citadel, you know, same thing. They're trained to – was a whistle blown? No, so I'm going to keep blocking them, whether <laughs> it's out of bounds or not. And, again, I didn't get to see the block. So, was it just the fact that he pushed them out of bounds and it was a little too far? Or did we talk about did he pick them up and slam them out of bounds? I mean, I think there is a difference there of what Coach Thompson is, is – concerned about on that play all that being said that was very odd that when all these things are turned out all these three straight drives went for it on fourth and a couple of them inside the 10 of Furman and didn't get them and then you have fumble galore and interception then I I just don't know how the three in-game penalties I'm taking out the false starts because there's no snap and the encroachment, which maybe there was a snap, but it seemed like it was an accepted five-yard penalty. So Furman took a shot; it didn't help him out anyway. So, yeah, very, very uh, confused. I don't really need to talk about the game. I just want to talk about this. Well, and I like Coach Thompson. I, mean, I do he's, too. He's, I think he has had some struggles over the last couple of years. Some within his control, some out of his control. If you followed any of the stuff that went on at the Citadel in the spring, and they went on that long losing streak, I think it was like nine in a row whatever it was, spanning the fall to the spring. And I was high on him this year. Not go contend for a conference title high. I think I projected him sixth or seventh in the media poll uh, in the preseason. I thought they'd be better than what they have been, quite honestly. And so I get the frustration, and I love that he just let it out there. I love that when coaches do And now it does get you – chided by people like us, you know, people that are sitting here talking about the games. It does. Um, But in all actuality, regardless of if it's the reason that they lost the game or not, and both of us will probably disagree with Coach Thompson, and maybe he's even sat back, watched film, and not been in the heat of the moment, and has a different take on it now. You know, who knows? But regardless of why they lost the game, I love getting on a microphone and freaking out. I mean, it's great. I mean, that's basically what you and me do for a living, right? I mean, it's fantastic. And so when a coach, after a loss, just lets their emotions out there, I mean, it, it's different but similar to Dan Campbell last week for the Lions. I mean, he got on, and after the Vikings made that game-winning field goal, it seemed like the Lions had it locked up, and then 30 seconds they moved down the field, kicked the game-winning field goal. And Dan Campbell is crying at the podium after because he feels for his players and he wants to win so bad for them. I mean, that is phenomenal, and it's different than what Coach Thompson did. I think that Coach Campbell will probably get a few more pats on the back, sympathy, um, and his players will probably be even more in for him. I'm not sure that this will evoke the same response from Coach Thompson, but it's still that fire that you have to love about football and coaches, and I feel for Coach Thompson because this, to me – was not really about the penalties. It was more about a frustrating couple of years. And maybe even part of it is seeing the game kind of change from the physical, just beat each other up for 60 minutes, and whoever is the stronger team will win, to what we do see now. Because 
I don't like a lot of the rules that they put into place either in terms of, you know, the tauntings and, you know, player safety is super important, but I, I think that specifically the tauntings and um, I think some of the player safety rules have gone a bit too far. I'm all for player safety, obviously, but uh, a blocking out of bounds, if it was not a pick you up and suplex you through a table, you know, if it's a couple of yards out of bounds, like, okay. that, that happens. I, I agree with you on that. I, I'd like to see what was the actual yes. penalty on that? Because if it is a guy got pushed an extra yard out of bounds, but was on his feet, never in danger, I totally agree. Sort of like the blindside block. I get if somebody's been earholed, but both the ones have gone against uh. CTSU, there have been hits, but it, they weren't super violent. Nobody lost, got off their feet. Right. Like it's one thing if you decleat a guy, which let's be honest, we used to. There's, you'd see a good punt return, and somebody start right, come left, and somebody peel back and just, oh, and you would, I mean, it makes me smile and laugh now. And thank goodness I was never that guy. I was, but still, I, I think we all, you know, kind of understand the frustration of sometimes football being safe, but we're not the ones getting hit, and I Absolutely. get that. I would like to see what exactly that penalty was on. Now, let me ask you this. Yes. Because all I've heard about was, Jace Wilson, right? Well, I'm about to answer your question with a question. I you go ahead. <laughs> I was Who's going to ask him first? Who's going to ask him first? So, a few things on it for me. There was no Devin Wynn, Dominic Roberto, 132 yards. One of them was a 90-yard touchdown run. He's pretty good, too. He is. And we've still got those quarterback questions, right? Ham Sisson replaces Jace Wilson late. Wilson, 4 for 12. 84 yards and a touchdown. Didn't appear he was lifted for an injury. It did not. I looked and looked and looked, and I did not see any injury that would have taken place. Um, I don't know if Jace Wilson is the future or not for Furman. It does not appear the future is now. I think that going with Hamp Sisson moving forward would be best for Furman this year. I wonder if you feel the same, and I wonder out of this game, because there are those out there that listen to the show, don't listen to the show, that view Furman as a conference title contender. Let's not even go that far. Does this game make you worry for ETSU going into this weekend in Greenville? Yes, I thought playing back-to-back SoCon games um, in places that you don't play well in, Chattanooga and Greenville, South Carolina, and traditionally ETSU only just a couple wins. I do have the largest win by visiting team in Greenville, South Carolina, but it's hard to hang your hat on that when you've got like three wins and 20-some losses. So I'll just say it worried me because it's just always been a tough place to play, and ETSU's not had a lot of success. It is the one time ETSU scored 30 points and lost a game. No, they lost 56-35. So, again, I don't think you can hang your hat on that. But I think with the way the rules are written, he's got two games in now, Wilson. So – they could still roll him out for a game and be like, are we going to continue this and burn the entire shirt, the red shirt, or are we not? I mean, I think if they feel good about him, they can play him one more week. It's and four games, right? He gets four. So, And I don't know that because they're still in it, I don't know how much you – if they had two losses already, let's say ETSU's undefeated, then I think they probably play Wilson look to the future. But you're all jumbled up with one loss, right? You think there's five teams and one loss? That's right. So 
you're playing to win a conference championship, and I think they'll go back to the drawing board, and I think they'll play. You know, I'm not going to – it wouldn't shock me if they went with either guy, but they're going to play the quarterback. I think it'll be telling who they think is – who's going to give them the best chance to win a championship. Now, if it starts out Sisson, maybe that tells you more about Wilson maybe wasn't ready. If Wilson goes out there, it's like, hey, we, I think it's we want to see more from him. And I think if he struggles this game and maybe one more game, then maybe they shut it down and let him wait until the next season. I do find it odd that Wofford and Furman are going to have, uh, conceivably, if Wofford goes with the new quarterback and Wilson stays on, they'll have two Texas quarterbacks um, running the show for them. But I'll be curious to see. Now, Sisson wasn't exactly world beaters when he came in. His first, first possession, he fumbled on a third and one. And then the next possession, he threw three straight incompletions. And the last drive, they basically handed off every single time and got a seven-play, 31-yard touchdown. So, again, it wasn't like he was that great. I mean, he's 0 for 3 for the day um, in a fumble that he did recover. So, I think they'll probably go with Wilson if I was to be completely honest about it because I just think there's no sense not taking advantage of the rules. And if he was already your guy – um, and he was ineffective without an injury, I think you would go ahead and put him back out there. This game for sure, and I don't know who they play after that. I might be able to look that fast enough. But if, uh, you know, at least play that one, and then if once you get by ETSU, uh, then you play Chattanooga. Ooh, those are two tough games. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I for Western Carolina. Uh, and, and, you know, West Carolina and Sanford, if you really want to roll the dice and say, hey, let's, let's put them in those, those two games, those defenses. But if you don't know what Wilson's made of, you put them in against the two defenses of ETSU and Chattanooga back-to-back and see what happens. I mean, you said Sisson wasn't a world beater on Saturday. He really hasn't been a world beater at all for Furman in his time with the Paladins. I mean, 19 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. Yeah, I think he got off to a decent start first couple games, though, this year. For, for I that was five worth, interceptions. Right? Well, know, that was the so Mercer game. I mean, I think if you take out the Mercer game, I was just thinking about the first, uh, was it two games, three games. I don't know what he did against NC State, but I'll look that up. But anyways, I, my, my point was that the first three, I thought he did an okay, uh, you know, he was 25 of 40, 363 and three touchdowns, one interception in the opening game. And then Tennessee Tech, which, you know, again, we know is not quite that great, 17 of 29 for 196. No interceptions. NC State's NC State, and he was 8 of 19 for 86 yards, a touchdown and interception. So the first three, I, I don't, you know, serviceable. He's not, he's not awful. Serviceable? Yeah, well, I, I'm not talking about serviceable. You know, you're saying world beater here. Like, well, if didn't. he's someone to keep, quote, unquote, the future right. off the field, that's what you have to, at this point, since the conversation has evolved to, is it Wilson or Sisson, you got to have somebody – that you're confident in putting out there. And if you want to chalk it up to just one game against Mercer, that's fair. I mean, it was three of the five interceptions. But I'm not sure that even with that game taken out, I'm sitting there and saying, wow, 19 touchdowns, 17 interceptions on his career. Is that Are we just going to get more of the one-to-one ratio and averaging like, you know, 150, 175 yards a game? Like, is that a championship-caliber quarterback if you believe you're contending for a championship this year? I don't think so. No. That um, being said, I think they're going to go with him. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that assessment. I, I think they'll go with Wilson. Uh, I, I just, I just okay. do. I, I think they'll probably see, again, with the rules the way they are, I, 
now they've already started them. And, again, I think a lot of people thought towards the end of the year, if they weren't in contention, you would see him last four games, right, to get you ready for the next year if you weren't in contention. I think the one reason you could see Sisson is for what I just said, though. If there's still everything worked out perfectly for Furman. They got a win. And for the league, Mercer, ETSU lost. And then you add VMI and Chattanooga, you got five one-loss teams. And you still got a lot of good matchups. I mean, this next week, Chattanooga's at Sanford. That'll be a good one. Western Carolina's at the Citadel. Actually, that'll be a good one. Wofford's at Mercer. So we'll see if Mercer can bounce back and if Wofford's committed back to the run game in ETSU Furman. I think those are solid contests that are going to go. And then you get into, I think it's November no, it's a little further down. Maybe the 13th, there's some good games. Yeah, Chattanooga is at Mercer. But if you look at the 13th of November, that could be a separation day because VMI is at Furman and Chattanooga is at Mercer. And for ETSU, it's a sandwich game because they would have just played VMI, they got Mercer the next week, and then they're in Cullowee, which for whatever reason, ETSU has a hard time. They've won in Cullowee more than they've won in Chattanooga and uh, at Furman. But it's always been a tough test there. We'll talk about those games coming up this weekend on Thursday. Are you excited to go back and watch the 90-yard touchdown run from 5'11", 242-pound Dominic Roberto? I'm excited to see how he went 90 yards. Yeah, I'm telling you, that's why I was amazed Furman was throwing the ball a lot early. And I know, again, that North Carolina A&T system had success, 300-something yards passing. But you look at Abrams, you look at Wynn, Roberto, couldn't even get a carry, and now all of a sudden, look what he's doing. I mean, I think the run game for Furman, and again, with that, they go back to more of the Air Force playbook of running and two back, even if it's not a true triple option look, but they go with a couple of running backs, different options, at least two options, to let a quarterback make the right read that way, then I think um, then that play-action game with the Luke and Miller tough, because if they start running the football, pounding down your throat, it's going to be very difficult to guard all of that. Do you know what week it is? Game time? Buck Madness Week. Buck Madness Week, Wednesday. Desmond Oliver's with us. Yeah, can't wait to hear from him. Buck Madness, open practice, roster, rotation, everything under the sun. Hard-hitting questions from Mike Gallagher. You know it. After this timeout, Santa Psychic, Buccaneer, Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead investing in our community today and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. show this Monday because once we hit September, October, really once kids are back in school, the anticipation really starts to build around the Tri-Cities for ETSU to return to the court. This man today making his return to the airwaves with us. Had him on the day he was hired at ETSU. He's settled in, gotten out in the community, gotten his feet under him at his first head coaching spot. He's just a few weeks away from leading the Blue and Gold into the next chapter of their life as a program head coach. Desmond Oliver, ETSU men's basketball coach. Welcome. Thanks for coming back on with us. Thanks for having me. 
From then until now, about six months ago is when we talked to you, day of hire to the day we sit here. What do you remember most, Coach, about these last six months? Um, they, they've been really good. Um, I've, I've tried to be organized, and so part of my process was I was prepared for this time frame. Like, I, I scripted, you know, day one. I scripted day 30. I scripted day 60. I mean, not so much where the, the days were scripted from start to finish, but just things to try to get accomplished during that time frame. And part, part of it was, you know, getting to know my players. And I spent, I've spent a lot of time with my guys on and off the court and feel like we have a really good rapport. They know who I am, and, and I know who they are, and that part of it's been good. My staff, um, the whole staff's been here, and they're, they're hired, um, and we're working together at trying to figure out what they're good at, what I'm good at, and how to mesh that with our team and players and everyone improve. So there's been a whole lot that we've gotten done um, you know, since the hire. Um, for example, I talked about trying to get a mentoring program started um, before the hire. During my interview, we have that established in terms of we have several businesses and CEOs of companies and guys that own their own companies that are going to mentor our guys. We, we've Zoomed with them, and right now we're at a point where we're going to hand out assignments and, and, and put players with certain with certain mentoring uh, or, or, or mentors. Um, talk about bringing back the former greats. Had a welcome back dinner um, two Fridays ago, um, and those guys came back. It was an honor to sit there and listen to Mr. Jennings and Calvin Telford and a host of other great players talk about their time. One, I was learning, just taking, taking advice and learning what makes this place great. And so just those are two small examples of just things that we've done and people that we've met and how fun that transition has been so far. From the outside looking in, it seems like one of the most challenging things would be exactly kind of what you talked about, getting everyone on the same page. So many moving parts. You had nine new players, six returners, all new coaches. That seems like the biggest difficulty with everyone coming in with probably their own individual ideas of how things are going to go and what role they'll play. Players that played one role on the team last year, you may be asking to do other things this year. Has that been the biggest, I don't want to call it a barrier, but the biggest challenge or obstacle in trying to make sure you're ready when opening day comes around? Surprisingly, it hasn't. Um, my players have been unbelievable. Uh, from day one, from my first team workout in the spring when I got hired to June workouts when they were here over the summer, um, the players have been great. And, and they, to me, they, I felt like they bought in from day one. And I think because my veterans have allowed it. I think from Silas to the Brewer brothers to um, David Sloan to Vonnie Patterson, um, the veterans have allowed, you know, Charlie, they, they've allowed the young guys to come on board and understand that they're following my lead. Um, and I try to communicate at a level where I don't, I don't act like I'm above them. Um, I want to be a father figure in a sense, big brother sometimes, um, and then leader. But I, I just try not to act like I'm above them. I, I try to talk to them in a way where it's mature. Like I, I try to avoid um, cursing and teaching. I want to teach. And so I, I really feel like they, they respect the approach I'm trying to have every day in practice. The biggest challenge I've had really has been my staff. And I have a great staff. It's been trying to find the right buttons to push because ultimately um, my job is to get the most out of everyone around me, my administration, my staff, my players, and then me flourish and, and, and get better because I'm, I'm certainly – I am not the finished product by any means. I'm, I'm learning every single day. And so, ironically, the, the, the team, they bought in from day one. And I have, I, I've had not one second of struggle other than your normal – I mean, kids, kids are going to not you know, play bad on Monday – 
and I have energy on Tuesday. It'd be great Wednesday, Thursday. That's normal. But attitudes have been unbelievable so far. How have you made sure to keep that in your mind that there are going to be off days when you are getting a chance after all these years that you've had being an assistant coach, now you're getting this head coach chance. It seems like it would be easy to make every day life or death, even though it's not the season yet, because you have put in so much work to get to this point. How do you stay grounded in that way? I played. I, I played basketball my whole life. I played, you know, I played one year of high school, but I played four years of college. I was in college for five years, but I played Actually, I played five years. I redshirted one year. So I was around it. I've been around it for a long time. I've coached now for 27 years. And I just know that they get better. They start at one level, and they get better and a little bit better. And I've raised two children. I have two boys who both play ball. And my 17-year-old wasn't very good when he first started playing, and he just got better and better and better. And he's getting recruited now by, by programs at our level and above. And so I know it's a process. You know, getting better, development is a process. And I know I inherited some talent. Um, the cupboard wasn't empty. What was empty was the culture. Um, they had lost something along the way. I mean, I, I know that 30 and 14 had a lot of culture and a, and a whole lot of pride. And sometimes when you bring in a whole new team and they sign a whole new group of guys, it doesn't always mesh right away. And I think, you know, surprisingly, those guys who are coming back now for their second year, guys like Bonnie Patterson, who – back now for their, I guess that's, this is his third year maybe, um, second or third year, you know, those guys are doing a good job of helping me piece it all together. And that's been the part that's been great because really coaches don't do it by themselves. At, at Tennessee we had great teams because the players allowed themselves to, to, to grow it with us. Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield and Lamonte Turner and Jordan Bone Bowden, um, Kyle Alexander, those guys built the program with Rick Barnes and our staff. It wasn't just coach. Open practice last week, Coach. You got your tip-off event this week just a couple of days from now. For people that weren't able to see the team last week, what should they expect if they're headed to Buck Madness, the tip-off event, this week? Well, one, for the people who attended our scrimmage last Saturday, I'll say this. Um, what they saw was our talent. We're athletic. We're talented. I thought that was the first time all season, you know, well, all preseason, that – we hadn't played on the court like we practiced. So I don't think the folks who saw us play on Saturday didn't really see the real, you know, bucks because we've been playing at a level way higher than that in practice. We've been playing faster, harder, better execution, better ball movement, better defense. They just saw our talent. You know, the first time in a while that, you know, players could be out there in the gym in front of people. Half my team is, is newcomers. And so, they, you know, guys are a little bit, you know, a little shell-shocked. And it's a big deal here. And so that was the kinks being, you know, kind of rubbed out a little bit. Uh, and I hope that as we, you know, scrimmage more, play in front of people more, we have a scrimmage here on the 30th um, away. We have an exhibition game coming up. I hope by the time we do it for real, all the kinks are out. Newcomers, let's go over them. Mohab Yasser, Jordan King, Alan Struthers, Brandon Hall, Cameron George, Cordell Charles, Matt Nunez, Jaden Seymour, Isaac Ferry. You said half your team's new. It's even more than that, 60%, nine in total of the 15 that you have. I'm sure you could probably name something about all of them that has impressed you. Who has impressed you the most? Well, I'll say this. Um, those guys are all competing right now and trying to figure it out because, I'm, you know, I, I told my team, I'm, I'm not playing more than 10 guys this year. And when I say playing, I mean every game my goal is to 
try to get ten guys into the game um, and, and rotate maybe nine. And, and so um, all those guys are not going to get a chance to get playing time. And so there will be some guys that they have to redshirt in that group. So they're still competing and trying to figure that out. Um, so far, with about maybe ten days still to go of competition, the young man that's impressed me the most has probably been Mo. Mohab has come. He came late. But because he's wired to win, like he does whatever you ask him. You say run through that wall, he'll say how many times. Um, and he's talented. He's big. He's strong. He's played against grown men overseas and done well against those guys. So he's confident. And he's hard on himself. But I'll, I'll say him. Uh, Cordell Charles is one of the most talented freshmen in the SOCOM. I, I just can't imagine there being any other program who has a more talented guy than Cordell. And so his talent will give him a chance to play some, even though he's still trying to figure it out. You know, I, I told Cordell if we started our season tomorrow, he'd play about five minutes a game just because he's not quite ready yet. And then today he had his best practice of the season. And, and, and so uh, I expect him to be available. So when we need him, you know, those two freshmen are, are probably the two, unless something changes in the next ten days, that have surprised me, you know, one with the talent level and Mo with just his toughness. The mixture of those guys with my vets, with Charlie Weber and Jordan King and, and all those guys who returned from last year that played, you know, Vonnie, the Brewer brothers, Cy, um, you know, I expect, and David, I expect this to really be a, a good nine, ten-man rotation. Let's talk about Mo a little bit more because that's the one name consistently I've brought up over the preseason and when he uh, signed, you know, showed up at ETSU, I've kind of harped on it because of the incredibly unique background that he has playing in some very notable tournaments and leagues in Egypt. I think the intriguing part of all of this for him and for us is will it translate because of the newness of a lot of those leagues and the unknown of the level of play at those leagues and in the competitions that he's been at um, for the common person that just hasn't had the chance to see the tape and isn't as adept as yourself, others that have been evaluating basketball players for such a long period of time. All that said, He's also competed at the NBA Academy Games, basketball without borders camps. He, he seems to have a pedigree. So when you look at him, what category does he currently fall into for you? Raw with high potential or polished and ready to make a difference? Well, I wouldn't say he's raw, and, 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 and he's certainly not polished. He's somewhere in between because his experience, like he is a super high basketball IQ, even though – He'll take some chances and, like, you know, break down our defense and run through a passing lane or overdrive it when there's help there waiting to take a charge. But he knows what he's doing. And, and so I, I wouldn't say raw, but, I mean, somewhere that next level between raw and polished, uh, just a tremendous competitor. And you know what? I left out one name, um, Jordan, uh, Jaden Seymour, who transferred from Wichita State, who's a redshirt freshman. The last week or so of practice, well, the last three or four practices has been unbelievable. And so my goal is, in the perfect world, my veterans lead our team. I think we have four all-conference caliber players in David Sloan, um, L.A. Brewer, Ty Brewer, uh, and um, Jordan King, right? I think Silas, because of our style of play, will, might be in that conversation as well. When those guys graduate, when the five guys leave and now Jordan King returns, Next year, we got to have the, to, to stay in the same conversation of being picked to be in the top three or four in the conference. I need guys to step up. So I'm hoping that the guys off the bench, Mo and Cordell and those guys and Jaden Seymour, they become, as sophomores, they become that four. So now you got next year, you got Jordan King, 
we'll play our point. And, 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 and you know, you got Cordell, you have Mohab, and, and Jaden Seymour. They become the guys who are in the conversation of being all conference. If we get that, we'll continue to have a chance to win the league every year. So the journey starts on the 12th of November. Two days later, you get to go back to Tennessee just a couple of days into your first season as head coach. That is less than a month from now. Personally, what's that going to be like for you? I, I mean, obviously, basketball-wise, I think it's going to be great for the players, the fans. Everybody's going to be excited for that game. For you personally, knowing the connection you have and kind of how that was the last little launching pad springboard to where you are now, what's that going to be like? I, honestly, I haven't thought about it. I mean, I'm just giving you an honest answer. We got so much to do between now and then. Like, like to me, thinking about Tennessee would be like running a 5K and thinking about, you know, what you're going to have for dinner that night. Because right now, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to start the race. And so starting the race is we have a scrimmage on Saturday. I can't wait to see what that looks like on video after we scrimmage. And then we're going to be at ECU on a close scrimmage the following weekend on the 30th, doing it for the first time against different, different colored jerseys. Can't wait to see who steps up in that. And then we got exhibition, and then we're at App State, and then we get to the, to the volunteers. So there's so much to, to evaluate. I haven't thought about it. And, and you know, I, I listen. I expect no matter who we're playing against, if it's Lee, if it's Division Two or Three, NAI, whatever the, the level is, that we play the same way we practice, and that's hard, fierce, intense, um, and, and we execute our dre: defend, rebound, run, execute. Last one between now and I guess what you call the end of the five K, which we're signifying as the preseason here before things do get underway. What needs to improve the most for you to be comfortable going into Appalachian State, November twelfth? Defense and rebounding, our defense and rebounding. We have, we have a potential to be an explosive offensive team when we share the ball. We just have shooters, we're athletic, we got size, we got speed. And so I don't want my, my, my good offensive players to think that we can outscore people. And so our DNA has to, has to start with defending and rebounding. And quite frankly, it starts with me because if I demand it, it'll happen. And so I've told my guys – that we start playing on the 30th against ECU, if they don't do those two things, they won't play very much. No matter how, no matter if you're, pre, if you're player of the year, preseason player of the year, if you're, if you're, you're a starter, we, we can't get to step two without doing that because I don't know any championship teams in our sport that do it without playing defense. And I asked our guys, I said, name one team that you've ever seen in your lifetime at our level or in the NBA level that couldn't guard they just outscore people and win a championship, and they were, the room was quiet. That's head coach Desmond Allen, ETSU men's basketball. Coach, thank you so much for coming back with us. Really appreciate the time. We will see you in a couple of days at Buck Madness over in Brooks Gym, and good luck as you prepare for your first season as head coach. Appreciate it. Thank you. Head coach Desmond Oliver, ETSU men's basketball. Back with more on Sinos and the Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are home. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are home watching the playoffs with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. 
Jamari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. The six foot six, 225 pound three star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. Cowboy up and go play ball.